Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? When it was evening, Jesus took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one to not have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus replied, You have said so. Who here has been betrayed? I'm sure we've all felt slighted at some point in life to some degree, obviously not being led to the cross bed, but for me that high school breakup was pretty bad. Who here has been the betrayer? Surely not I, surely not my family, surely not this church. I think about every time I hear of innocent life lost to senseless violence. I think to myself that something has to be done for my kids, for my wife. They have to do something. But what am I doing? What am I willing to sacrifice to actually do something about it? Am I willing to let go of some comforts? Am I willing to admit some fault in where we are? Am I willing to concede to those who, I'm, who I may not fully agree with? 
you see all the talking heads giving their talking points that they, their PR team came up with, and I get angry. But what have I done to actually change it? Are they just an easy outlet to shift the blame to and say, well, it's not my problem, I can't do anything about it. Maybe we don't have as much perceived power as them, but we do have a voice. Are we using it? Are we holding the people accountable that we've put in place to speak for us? And deeper, are we willing to follow through with actual action? What will we say to our kids when they ask, where were you? I feel like far too often when evil rears its ugly head, we look to what they need to do. But are we really looking inward? Are we holding, a, are we holding on to our own self-interest instead of truly caring about our neighbors? Are we Judas? Are we telling the world, our community, our kids, surely not I, when we know that we aren't willing to go that far for him? I think if we took a good hard look inward, if I took a good hard look inward, far too often that we are the betrayer. And our kids, my kids, will say, you have said so.
When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters of me on this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Though all become deserters of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. I'm Randy Davis. I've been a member of downtown church for 10 years. Um, you see, uh, I apologize, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I know what it's like to be deserted. Uh, you see, I was a law enforcement officer for 27 years, both with the sheriff's departments and police, of police officer. In that 27 years, there's a brotherhood that you create with your other law enforcement brothers. You spend a lot of time together. You spend a lot of time away from your families over the holidays, important events. Uh, sometimes you even miss births for your children. We experience a lot of things that most people mostly don't see or most often don't see and probably shouldn't see on a regular basis and often see stuff that you can't forget. Here's an interesting fact or statistic. The average person experiences about two or three critical incidents or traumatic events in their life. Law enforcement can experience up to 180 critical incidents in their career alone. We have to trust each other and be there for each other. Our lives depend on it. In 2013, my dad was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. I was by his side when I received the call, or when he received the call, the diagnosis, all the way through his treatments that lasted for 10 months. Once my dad passed, I began to experience emotions that I couldn't understand. I hadn't had these emotions before. I didn't know what was going on. In law enforcement, we're taught to suppress our feelings and you just move on to the next event. You don't have time to sit there and reflect on it and just to go through the emotion and the sadness and to deal with the fear you just experienced. I was struggling and couldn't understand why I was struggling. When I opened up to my brotherhood, I didn't feel as they had my back. I felt broken. You see, we don't typically talk about our feelings in law enforcement. We just move on to the next task, the next crisis, next situation, and just kind of just keep it inside. I felt deserted. Knowing that Jesus was deserted by his brotherhood makes him more real to me and more relatable. Jesus knows our suffering. He knows how alone we are.
came out, and as was his custom, he went to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you might not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. When Jesus got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. This parable humanizes Jesus when he gets angry at the disciples for abandoning him during his time of strife. We can imagine the intense feeling of loneliness Jesus feels right before his death. When I was living in Charleston, I had a specific walking route that I would like to take. Most days, I would see this one woman who was presumably living in Marion Square Park. One day, instead of walking past her with a wave, I decided to stop and have a conversation with her. At the end of our chat, when I was about to leave, she said to me, It would be great if people gave us money, but all anyone wants is to be treated like a human. It is hard for me to think about all the pain and loneliness this woman feels every day. I can imagine her life growing up. Maybe she had friends and family that used to support her, much like the disciples usually did for Jesus. Perhaps she feels the way Jesus felt when he found the disciples sleeping rather than praying with him. We've all felt this feeling before in some way or another, and there is some comfort knowing that Jesus himself has too. That one sentence that the homeless woman had said to me has stuck with me in my everyday life since. No matter the situation that has left me feeling lonely, I remember it is better to do something about it. God wants us to spread love and make the hateful domino effect stop with us by helping those that are hurt by this feeling. Every person has been or is marginalized in some way or another. 
Many, if not most, of Jesus' stories are about helping those who are currently in need of attention. Jesus gave up his life to save us from our own sins, but that doesn't mean we can do whatever we please because of it. We must continue to pray for those in the eye of the storm, like Jesus and his disciples in hard times. If we continue to do this, God will deliver us from evil. Trust me, I know it's hard, but the feeling of knowing God is behind your decisions is astronomically better and more free. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one who I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and with clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, 
and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, all of them deserted and fled. Which character are you drawn to in this familiar drama of human failure? Any takers for Judas, the universally agreed upon villain? I know, me neither. And that's how I know this is God's invitation for me to see Judas in myself. Like Judas, I falsely accuse others. Accusing drivers of careless stupidity when I'm the one that's actually changing lanes without looking. At least I didn't falsely accuse someone to their death, I justify, which tells me I'm not really looking close enough yet. Judas's accusations weren't against random strangers, but rather an intimate, close relationship. He was one of the 12, Jesus's chosen disciple. He addressed Jesus with the personal title, Rabbi. He delivered his accusation with a kiss. This close personal relationship makes his false accusation worse. And that awakens me to a much harder truth. about how I falsely accuse those close to me. How many times have I accused my husband of losing something only to discover I was the one who had misplaced it? How frequently do I default to accusing him of doing something wrong, which really means he didn't do it my way? and even harder, accusing him of neglecting and ignoring me, when in truth, I'm the one withdrawing and defending. I spent too much of my adult life accusing my parents of not understanding me, of not accepting me, of not even loving me, when truthfully, they loved me very much. And they devoted themselves to being the best parents that they knew how to be. It would be a very long time before I could really appreciate that parents will inevitably contribute to the emotional wounding of their children, no matter how much they love them. And that insight came because I lived long enough to have adult children who I have accused of falling short of their potential of not always making the wisest choices, which of course was code language, for they haven't succeeded in ways that I imagined, nor always embraced my values. And my often poorly disguised disappointment in them has likely diminished their confidence, 
the component most needed for their success. But the real crime I've accused my children of is failing to make me look like a great parent that I had imagined I had been. Of course, I haven't been that honest or direct. Like Judas, who delivered his accusation of Jesus with a kiss, I've offered my accusations in the form of gentle advice, wise words, potential recommendations, generous support, thoughtful questions to spark actions and insight, when all they have ever needed as adult children is my unconditional love and freedom from my expectations and judgment. Judas and I both have seen the pain caused by our false accusations. Judas was much quicker than me. Yet God used Judas's false accusations for God's redemptive purpose. And I'm seeing God at work redeeming my false accusations. Judas, however, embraced a destructive end upon seeing his brokenness. Whereas I've experienced God's amazing grace, forgiveness, and continually healing and seeing as I own my brokenness. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
They spat on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head after mocking him. They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Tonight I have the honor of telling you about my dear friend Richard and how he's brought me closer to Jesus. Richard killed a man in 1999 and was sentenced to death. More than 20 years later, his lawyers reached out to me to see if I could convince the Supreme Court to allow a special argument, one that had not occurred in more than 40 years, which would allow me to argue that Richard should not be executed. Against all odds, the court granted the argument, giving me 90 minutes to persuade them that the laws that were used to sentence Richard were flawed and that the facts of his case did not warrant death. While the court agreed that the laws needed to be changed, they refused to change his sentence. The day the decision came out, Richard was served a death notice. The notice said that in four Fridays from then, two weeks after Good Friday 2022, Richard would be executed. Also in that notice was instructions that Richard must select the way that he wanted to be executed, either a 100-year-old electric chair or to face a firing squad as he was strapped in upright in a chair. This method of selecting his own execution and the underlying facts of his conviction invited an outpouring of support for Richard from around the world. But it also brought on a lot of harshness and cruel criticism of Richard. Complete strangers framed him as a monster. They used his name and his image to channel their own fears and insecurity. In the end, both sides of this broader debate, though, used Richard as political capital, turning him into talking points for a never-ending news cycle. But none of them knew Richard or his heart. They didn't know his kindness. They didn't understand his servant's heart and the way that he cares for the other men on death row or even for me and his other friends and family members. They had no clue that Jesus had changed Richard in these last 20 years, nor did they see him as a father, a friend, and a child of God. Last year, I struggled listening to the scripture that Lucas just read. Then I found it almost difficult to breathe as the speaker who responded to that scripture explained that there was no way that we could understand what it was like to await a crucifixion as a community as a follower of Jesus, as a friend of Jesus on the sideline as he is just undergoing this crucifixion. The problem was in that moment, I knew exactly what it would have felt like to be a friend of Jesus and on the sidelines. That very night was the 10th night that we awaited Richard's execution and I felt every ounce of the overwhelming heartbreak of his potential death. 
I felt the weight of knowing that my words were not enough to save Richard or to ensure justice in our system. I felt the pain of knowing and seeing our brokenness and the agony that surrounds the complex layers of human suffering, including knowing that my dear friend would soon experience an excruciating pain. Because you'll see, execution doesn't oftentimes work. It would take a few times, no matter the decision that he made. Because of Richard, Jesus had never felt more real or more human. Two days after Easter, the Supreme Court granted a stay of execution. Richard turned 58 in February. While these trials and death sentences are more than 2,000 years apart, this shadow of crucifixion feels ever so present to me. I think it's because at the end of the day, we all have to grapple with death in one way or another. Even Jesus had to face his own. In the silence and darkness of impending death, especially a death that comes as a product of man, rest our true understanding of human suffering. Over the past year, I've thought a lot about this service and what it was that actually caused me to have such a hard time hearing Lucas read that scripture and why did I have such an intense emotion. And what I've come to realize is that in this space and with our church, for the first time I felt the gravity of Jesus' sacrifice. It wasn't just a story. And in feeling that, Jesus was no longer this action figure type superhero savior that we always talk about. Instead, Jesus was real. He was human, and he was just another friend of mine that I was standing on the sidelines awaiting a crucifixion that I knew was to come. When I was able to have that transition and really feel Jesus as a human, what I came to understand was I fully understood the overwhelming pain and suffering that Jesus so willingly endured for all of us. When I cross over, I will shout and sing. I will know my Savior by the mark where the nails have been, by the mark where the nails have been, by the sun upon his precious skin. precious skin 
now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly, this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. He breathed his last, <clears throat> and the crowds who had gathered there returned home. Having had a close encounter with death, it's really easy for me to imagine how they might have felt and what they might have done when they returned home from watching a man die. My late husband was struck by lightning on July 24, 2001, and four days later, he was declared brain dead. I had been by his side for the better part of those four days, but at the actual time of death, I was at lunch with my daughter and she was pulling on my leg, telling me that she really had to poop uh, while I tried to listen to what the doctor was saying to me. We agreed to keep Brent on life support until the following evening when his organ harvest surgery was scheduled. So around 7 p.m. on July 29th, we walked with his gurney from the ICU to the OR. Doctors and nurses and staff lined the hallways to pay their respects to the organ donor. My youngest was two, and he wanted to hold his daddy's hand the whole way. My oldest was six, and she stayed in the waiting room, refusing to see her dad in that state. Then suddenly, it was over. I squeezed his hand, and I kissed his cheek, and he was wheeled through the doors that we couldn't go past. 
He was gone and we were left to return home. We couldn't actually go home though. This all happened on our family vacation, so we went back to our condo at the beach. I could never have imagined my husband dying at that time and in that way. It was a tragedy and it was a spectacle. But on the evening that we returned home from the hospital for the very last time, what we did and how we felt might surprise you. It was a 45 minute drive home from the hospital. The sun was setting and I was playing Chris Stapleton because his stuff is kind of sad and that felt right. But more than sadness, I was feeling relief. After so many days in the ICU with the outcome of his injuries becoming more obvious each day, I was waiting for him to die. As my friend Lucas might say, there was a tension. Tension between wanting to be by Brent's side, holding his hand while it was still warm, but also wanting to be with my children and with our family and friends that had gathered in Florida. They couldn't be at the hospital because of COVID restrictions. I needed someone to take his body out of my reach. I couldn't have left him any other way. So after five days of suspense, I felt relief and I felt free to go home. And when we got back to the condo, I asked for a few minutes alone. I walked to the beach to the spot where it happened, expecting to cry or throw sand or have some moment of hysterics and it didn't come. I suppose I was still in shock. And after a few minutes of feeling nothing but nosiums biting me, I went to find the others. And when I got there, I found a fairly odd collection of people, two of my closest friends, Brent's sisters, my brothers, my parents, and a preacher sitting at the dining room table. Most of them were drinking an adult beverage and everyone was laughing. Someone jumped up and offered me a seat and a beer and it was easy to smile as I joined the exchange of stories about Brent. His sister Carrie told us about the time he hid in a pantry for two hours, waiting for her and their neighbor friend to walk by so he could scare them. It worked, but none of us were sure it was worth the wait. There were a few readings of text messages sent by Brent, all encapsulating his unique brand of kindness, wit, analysis of sports or current events, and usually some pretty vulgar humor. I learned a lot of good stuff about him that night. This is the person I knew better than anybody, and it was a gift to realize that even after his death, there was so much more to know about him. The stories went on for hours, and they were a real mixed bag, and we all agreed to keep alive the memories of when he was kind and encouraging, when he was humble, noble, but also the times that he was annoying and stubborn and kind of an ass. I felt so proud of him, happy to have been married to him, lucky that he had chosen to spend his life with me, grateful for the energy that he brought to the world. Don't get me wrong, it was still a very dark time. I was heartbroken, shocked, scared for myself and my children, for our future. But that night, sitting around the table, talking, drinking, laughing, and crying, it was a really sacred time. His death derailed everything I thought I had known. It stopped me completely in my tracks. But in that great big pause, before I had to figure out how to go on with my life, I was able to sit in the darkness of his death 
with people who loved him and loved me and held space for all of the complexities of that loss. these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first had come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and they wrapped it with spices and linen cloth according to the burial custom of the Jews. And there was a garden in the place where he had been crucified. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What did Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus think and feel? 
as they cleansed Jesus' body and wrapped his body in linen clothes. To cleanse a body after death was, and still is, a custom of Jews today, including burial as soon as possible. It's a sign of great respect. This custom, I surmised, helped Joseph and Nicodemus process the unbelievable events that had just transpired. Death is universal, and yet it is intimately unique. Every person processes it differently. Death of a loved one, can take us to the furthest ends of the spectrum of love and pain. It's probably the most personal and unique experiences in our lives to witness. Jesus knew this. Jesus can take us from the depths of our darkest hour to the light of his love, his promises, and his mercy. As Joseph and Nicodemus tenderly cleansed Jesus' wounds, did they look at Jesus' tortured face and finally see the look of peace on his face? Did these men cry? Were their eyes filled with tears, tears of sorrow for the loss of their friend? Their friend Jesus, who they admired, looked up to, they knew he was a prophet. He was a good and holy man that they loved deeply. I can't imagine, but that they probably put their ear to his chest to hear his heartbeat, their ear to his lips to hope and feel. Perhaps life was still there. Did they reach out and hold his broken body and kiss their friend goodbye? Did they wish for time to stop? sure they wanted just one more minute, one more hour, one more day to savor, to be with him. Maybe they reminisced about songs that they had hummed together or sung together, stories and laughter together. I've never heard a story that, about Jesus having a pet, but we know that there were animals when he was born. And I can't help but wonder and hope that there was a pet that may have laid with him. Because animals will do that. They'll lay with a person as they're dying and at time of death. 
We heard that Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of myrrh. I don't know if he brought this in hopes that maybe he could save Jesus from death or the myrrh could be put on his wounds and if this would become a liniment for aching muscles. I'm sure he was hopeful, hopeful, both men, that maybe they could save Jesus from death. Or maybe this hundred pounds of expensive myrrh was a gesture, a very generous gesture, and last gesture to a friend, part of the ritual. Did they wonder how? How could God allow their friend to be crucified in this ugly manner, this holy man who surely was God's prophet, who they had witnessed his miracles? He lay dead before them. I'm sure they cried out to God, please open Jesus' eyes and restore life. Ritual and customs dictated Jesus to be cleansed and buried as soon as possible. I believe this ritual and this custom probably served as a pillar of strength to the gentleman. They could have gone down that rabbit hole of questioning and wondering why. God, why? Why now? Was there so much more we wanted? We wanted to be with this person. We wanted to learn more from Jesus. Of course, God knew. Did these two men, who may have been the last people to physically touch the body of Christ, fathom that the events, the events of that day would transform the world forever?